0: Listening to Loving the Snow Life with Emma and Tanil. Tanil, our mum, and Emma, her awesome friend, share deep passion for the snow. They started the podcast together to share all their experiences with you. Between them, they have skied over 95 resorts, both held ski instructor qualifications, lived and worked in resorts, and still spent every hard-earned dollar skiing. They set their lives up around snow travel, and our ski bags are always packed, ready to go.
1: We're certainly not complaining about this,
0: are we? No way. And even better, we get
1: to share all the experiences.
0: Snow survival has crossed the mind of every skier and snowboarder, even if it's a passing thought about how to safely exit a failing chairlift or how to stay safe when separated from mates during a whiteout. Tony Loughran is a British-born ex-commando medic who spent large chunks of time in isolated Arctic areas utilising specialised remote medical training to treat all manner of injury and accidents. Tony was an easy choice for the Loving the Snow Life podcast and today we talk inbounds and outbound survival situations. We discuss best equipment, what's in the all-crucial backpack and managing injuries. We asked Tony about his post-commando medic life, his company Zero Risk, courses he runs and his book coming out August 2023. Hi Tony, Hi, Tony. how are you?
2: I am great to hear from you. Hey Tony. Hey, Tanil. How, How are, are you? you? I'm good, good, good. Very yeah.
3: good. Excited to speak to you today.
2: Yeah, look, it's, it's great to be on the program. I kind of, um, I was excited. I was pumped. I was looking at some of the question sets that you know that uh, to, to run through, and it was quite nice to actually kind of be able to uh, relate to a lot of the stuff. You know, it was, um, you know, it was brilliant that uh, you set it up the way it has and. I'm looking forward to uh, trying to impart a bit of knowledge for you today. So it's all good.
0: We want to ask you about your book that's coming out next year, August 2023. We'll ask you about that towards the end. But we want to really pick your brain about outdoor survival stuff, uh, especially for normal normal folk that, who aren't commandos, who aren't yeah. used to hanging out in the Arctic for weeks on end and months on end. Um, and in particular how it relates to survival in the snow inbounds and out of bounds, which is a growing market.
2: Well, it's a funny thing you should say that because basically if you look at what we did, and i explained before about working in the Arctic and going out for weeks on end or whatever, uh, equally, you know, there have been cases obviously where people have disappeared off-piece or whatever and uh, they haven't been found for days, but then they've actually been found. And that even goes down to... The stories that you've heard from the blue mountains anyway where there's maybe not any snow but it's a remote location you know so the survival principles are all the same you know and, and I'll take you through that as well as that when we take people on our survival courses in general uh, what they don't understand is that when I say to them what's the most important thing that you need to survive and they go uh water no um well a, a gps no it's fire actually if you can create, create a fire anywhere OK, then at the end of the day, you've got a very, very good chance of surviving because it sends a signal up in the air. Uh, you feel warm. You feel kind of that glow. You can cook on it. You can boil water. You can you can do whatever you can dry things out. So on our survival courses, that the first thing they learn is that if they if they come unstuck, if they're in the middle of nowhere, whether it's the snow line, whether it's rural or whatever, is to get a fire going and straight away to actually kind of get everyone around.
3: Wow yeah I would I would have gone attitude (laughs) but
2: (laughs) you go first to me before you break the fire yeah
3: exactly I will make it I will make it it goes goes back to the survivor I I love the survivor show on tv you probably just go that is just not even (laughs) close to to what my life is but (laughs) it's all reality tv (laughs) so tell us a little bit about your life tony it is like I mean, you, we could be here for, I think, about you know, fifteen days listening to it. But yeah. tell us who you are and why why you are running survival courses.
2: So basically, um, if I come back to the life side of it, really, first to me is that, uh, and that this is all in the book as well. Is uh, decided to write things from when it was the age of five all the way through to well, to, to, to present day. But what it what it is really is it's it's about like you know, it's about resilience uh, from an individual point of view survive my home at the time like you know within liverpool uh liverpool was a very very tough place to grow up in uh, at the time and then from there obviously it's me going into the navy uh taking a quantum leap to move away from kind of the actual the problems that i had like you know when i was a kid or uh getting into violent, getting into crime or whatever and then all of a sudden you know um starting to <laughs> sit examinations properly you know i'd failed all my kind of you know, previous qualifications like O levels and that uh, which is your kind of your school certificate or HSE? Yeah. And what happened was I went into the commandos, and from there we I actually went into a, a specialist team for mountain Arctic warfare, and that stayed with them. Then finished off in a commando unit, and then I was headhunted by um, the BBC to come and work as their head of international security and high risk operations, probably for fourteen years. So it involved everything from going to find out the deputy leader for Al Qaeda to have an interview with him, uh, all the way through to um, looking at um, tracking down kind of paedophile rings in Philippines and different other areas, ready for news stories. And uh, I did a series of investigations, really, of where things were going wrong and why individuals were assassinated or killed. And um, some of the evidence I, I kind of pulled together, uh, which again is written in the book. Uh, that that went towards uh, the potential for a war crime investigation.
1: Wow!
3: Wow! So, so why the BBC? Why not the government? <laughs>
2: Uh, well, actually, enough. I had feet in both camps. Really, um, okay. that was the nice thing about the job. You know, is that uh, again in the book. You know, uh, we talk about the chemical biological threat to UK. Uh, we were aware of the actual terror threats in UK, and we were able to actually kind of uh, provide information back into the security services for uh, for the MI five, MI six divisions, and we were able to take information back from them as well. So we had a very good relationship. Like in and. You normally, find to be honest with you, like the likes of corporate networks like BBC or whatever, um, normally do have an MI6 kind of you know <laughs> trail because they go into the overseas environments all the time to so the you know, the weird and wonderful countries, anyway.
3: Yeah, yeah, wow, oh my gosh, you were so well qualified to be writing to be running survival courses then.
0: <laughs> <Yeah, I'm, laughs> try a couple of knots, <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, the funny thing is to me as well is that, um, what happened to me was. When you talk, So the second part of your question is that yeah. you know, the actual survival courses. A couple of years ago, I came back from Europe and I, I was telling them this as well. I actually found that um, there was a couple of friends of ours, like whose who's kids, that, you know, 13, 14 years of age, had jumped off the cliff and, you know, sadly committed suicide. And it, was, it, was, and it seemed to be like it was on the increase in northern beaches and in Australia. Yeah. Um, so I said to my team uh, around the globe, I said, why don't we just create these courses like, you know, uh, parent and child survival? So it means you can bring them all back together again, and we'll put them into an extreme environment, and it'll be a hybrid course where we bring elements of our international business traveler course into this course as well. So they're not just sitting there waiting for the next rabbit to appear so they can kill the rabbit or whatever. Yeah, are being tasked along the way, and uh, the course has been a success. Uh, unfortunately, COVID put a bit of a you know a temporary kind of halt to it, but we're, we're now going back to it again and going down to Malindi to look at the training ground, and then do that. Because what we feel is that it's the actual kids and the parents have had a huge disconnect. You know, they may have come together during COVID. Yeah. What's happened is that, um, there's you know, pre-COVID, the kids were going all over the place. They were just kind of not really understanding their parents, not really thinking they're cool, you know, and the stresses on them were huge. And uh, I just think we need that course again where you can learn by the passage. You know, so at the end of the day, you get skills passed down, you can work. Absol-
3: it yeah. It's more, it's more than needed now, I think, after COVID because we were connected in the house, but sometimes, you know, we just, I was quite strict on phone usage and and then that was the only way that my kids were, could communicate to each other through COVID. So yes. that kind of crept in again and I think it needs to creep right back out again. But now-
0: that's, <laughs> a, that's the beauty of skiing. Yeah. yeah. Gets the kids out there on the mountain and away from all that.
2: Try and get the kids out. And as Em said, anyway. There's nothing like the remote location to get you out in the uh, you know in, in the middle of nowhere. And the first exercise in our our parent uh, uh, child course is kind of interesting. We get them all lined up. We take every single technical piece of kit off them, whether it's kind of a you know a phone, a tablet, uh, a computer, whatever, and we put them in a blue uh, waterproof bin and we sink it into the lake and uh. that is the bottom of the lake on a brick uh, to the bottom anyway. And no, they don't see anything at all for three days. So it's like cold turkey. <laughs>
3: I love it. I love it. I'm um, signing me up now <laughs> for my kids and I. Yeah. Sign me up for my husband too. No, <laughs> the whole family. Let's get in. <laughs> <I know. laughs> so, like, so talking about remote. You, you, tell us about your Norway adventures because that's where your ski, your snow started, didn't it? Really. And
2: yeah, I, I, again, I, you know, I mentioned this in the book. Is that um, to me? What <laughs> happened was once I passed the commando course, like you know, uh, the guys and I had to join this elite elite group. They suddenly realized that I've never skied before. You know, I'm kind of a you know, guy plucked out from Liverpool, thrown on the, on the medical course, uh, not knowing what's going on. And I actually remember drawing my first set of skis, like, you know, from the stores with these wooden planks, huge, big planks, like, you know. And uh, and I look at them and I'm going, what 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 are they? What, what happens? And they, they suddenly realized, oh, hang on, we need some training for this guy. Because the guys who were on the ML2's course, which is what it's called anyway, uh, the real mountain leaders, like the real hard kind of core guys, I was going to be with them for for the whole of their winter deployment for the first one, and they skied so fast with with weights as well. It's like they've got literally like fifty five kilos of weight each to carry. You know, so if you think okay. of it, that's, that's like a, a person's body Person, weight.
1: Yeah.
2: And what was very hey, very
1: COVID? Sorry. sorry.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. COVID slimsier diet. You know? uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I kind of. I mean, from from my point of view, like you know, I found that. Um, what I had really was that uh, we were sent away on a, on a course to a place called Ruken in Norway, uh, which is right in the actual top end of Norway there. Um, and we had these military ski instructors who took us through for a novice course for a month, and it was solid month. And they would build you all the way up until you could fully telemark, okay? And you could get really, really good at telemark, but then they'd actually give you the weight to put on your back as well to simulate what would happen you know, in, in the winter. So we finished that anyway in the December all went on leave, all got chubby, all kind of drank, ate, whatever you like, you know, and then we went straight into uh, to Norway and, you know, I think I mentioned in the book, it's, it was a, a huge contrast to me living in Malta when I was a kid, like, you know, to <laughs> open the aircraft door and all of a sudden this icy blast of wind comes in, like, and you're going, Holy yeah. I,
0: mean, I don't know if we if we picked up so far, but you're actually the medic of the, of the commander. Yeah. So that was the additional responsibility for you that you had all your gear to I had everything people in the field as the medic so this is why we're kind of roping you in for snow survival stuff yeah today <laughs> in this podcast um,
2: yeah. look it's it's a, it's a really good it's a very very good point to mention because basically you know everyone had the same weapon everyone had the same you know uh magazines with uh, with bullets in or rounds as they call them, and uh we all had our own survival kits One of the guys was a radio operator, so he carried the radio, which is an extra kind of 15 pounds in weight or, you know, so many kilos in weight. But me, I had a huge medical pack. It was massive. And um, I would have to take that into the field with all of our team. And, um, you know, and I'd have to have it to hand very, very quickly because things would happen very quickly, you know. And and I I mentioned to you, um, you know, some of the things I talk about in the book, you know, about really where uh, sometimes it's a life and death situation to get onto somebody very quickly. Yeah. And uh, just to make sure at the end of the day they're not bleeding out, you know. And as you know, when you bleed in the snow, it looks kind of twice as bad as what it is because it's the white background with the red claret blood coming out, you know. Yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs> yeah it's horror movie stuff. So do you carry oxygen as well? Because I know I had a ski accident and I my, <laughs> I was trying to keep up with the boys when I was 18. Yeah. And, and, I, and I went down like, you know, ravine in Whistler. Yay. And really? my ski came over the back of my head and I chopped my head with my ski. And I didn't realise that I'd actually cut my head because it was a beanie. I had a beanie. It was the pre-helmet days. So yeah. I had a beanie on and that kind of held the blood and then it was like not until I got to the lift that all of them were like, oh, your head's bleeding, are you okay? And then as soon as I knew that, I kind of, I needed oxygen. I lost the power of breathing. So how do you how do you help with that on the oh. skin? Because I'd imagine that that's the adrenaline leaving your body and the fear creeping in.
2: Yeah, what, what you've gone through there, to be honest with you Neil, you've Neil, you've gone through this particular dislocation of expectation. Okay, you, all of a sudden you're thinking everything's fine and then you're moving through it and then you end up with this thing called the adrenaline dump,
1: mm-hmm.
2: like fright and fear. And what you've hit is the fear side of it because obviously, you know, the blood's looking as bad as worse as what it's going to be. Hmm. And, and you can't see the injury because it's at the back of your head. Yeah. So you're thinking, hang on a sec, I've got this big gash there or whatever, like, you know, so your mind's playing tricks. And, you know, from our point of view, what we've had before, we've had everything we've had dislocated shoulders where the actual the the head of the shoulder itself is it ended up at the, the very back towards the spine
1: oh complete
2: rotation round from here where we've had to pull it all the way back again under uh, pressure and under anesthetic but you know from painkillers point of view
1: yeah
2: you know the thing is we wouldn't be able to carry oxygen you know because that's another kind of you know a couple of kilos or whatever yeah what we did carry was uh compressible ambu bags and the ambi bag was a plastic kind of sleeve that you see that, you know, in, in operating theatres where they squeeze the oxygen through into the, into the mouth with a little mask or whatever. And that was a question of, you know, and in fact, to be honest, the thing we need to touch upon straight away is teamwork. You know, mm-hmm. what people are doing, because I noticed in the video that you showed me about that falling into that little ravine is at the end of the day, um, you know, there seemed to be some sort of leadership where everything stopped, mm-hmm. you know, like I said, and the worst thing you're ever going to get. We we had it on our medical train as well. It's called the ring of death. And what happens is there's a casualty on the floor, and you get so many people looking over you, and everyone's looking at you, but not knowing what to do. And they're all going, "Oh shit! That oh My god!" That looks... yeah. <laughs> well, we
0: might um, we might rein you in for the. We, we want to hit the Japanese scenarios a bit later and Gulmag, but um mm-hmm. we'll touch on the inbound scenarios first because when When people think of ski resorts and snow resorts, and in our podcast intro, we say that we've been to 95 snow resorts and we have, but people in their mind may think snow resorts thinking Western countries, they're thinking clear boundaries, excellent ski patrol, ski etiquette, everyone's behaving, everybody's staying, doing what they're they're meant to do. But really, I mean, that's kind of the best case scenario and it gets worse from there. So, Neil, do you want to deal with the inbound stuff first?
3: It also gets worse when there's fresh snow. People lose all of that.
0: <laughs> and they, yeah. I guess, yeah, the
3: big thing in inbound is what people in Australia, we get a lot of wind, so the lifts stop, you know. So um, and sometimes you don't know how long you're going to be on a lift for. If it does stop, um, myself, I've been on a lift here. In, in Canada as well, I've been on a lift where it stopped and we weren't quite sure what was going on. The lift was going backwards and then more backwards, and we had to make a decision. Yeah, it was bouncing, you know, and then kids kind of go after we we jump. Yeah. We jump. And yeah. So what best case scenario? I mean, I don't we were we were actually planning to like pole down, like use our poles together, get our kids down first. This was in Canada, we we're on the lift in minus 17 for. 30 minutes but we're at the highest peak as well so we were like starting to panic um anyways what would you recommend if you're stuck on a lift w- just do you wait for advice from below or w- how do you calm people down like I all of a sudden had to be a parent to uh, and how long how long uh, yeah
2: yeah yeah well like that, that's, that's a <coughs> question
3: the, sorry the, in that
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it a really great question and look and again I've reviewed some of the video clips of some of these kind of uh disasters really where you know, all of a sudden, like, you know, the lift itself, like, you know, potentially is coming off from the cable or whatever, you know, and they're trying to figure out it's a, it's a real kind of cliffhanger movie uh, scenario. Yeah. My suggestion would be, and it's kind of interesting, because we've done this before, in your backpack, okay, I would strongly recommend, okay, that people do have a small backpack. I really would recommend that because you never know when you're going to get cut off. Okay. My horror story, uh, sorry, I'll, I'll mention this very briefly because I'll put into context, we were supposed to be going back into snow holes as part of an exercise in Norway. We, uh, the helicopter picked us up, took us all the way through to the, uh, the ridgeline where the actual snow holes were. They okay. said to us, don't worry about it. You're only staying overnight. Throw all of your backpacks on the helicopter. We'll head down to the valley, and then we'll meet you down the valley the following day. Well, as soon as we got to the snow holes, the helicopter disappeared. We said goodbye. We looked inside the snow holes. They'd all collapsed. Oh. So we had nowhere to stay. So, the call then was we've got nowhere to stay. We've got no equipment. Okay. We've got no radio <laughs> contact at the time. So, we decided to navigate our way down to the actual valley floor from, and it was miles away. But in the meantime, what had happened was we'd hit all kinds of temperatures, like, you know, so minus 40, then plus two rain and plus two, which is really freaky. Wow. And it went cold again. So, we were yeah. saturated, cold, hypothermic. Okay. From that particular point of view. But the point I'm making really in all of this is your backpack is your friend, okay? what You've got everything in that backpack that you can survive on for 24, 48. Now, back to your scenario. So here's the drill. For me personally, the worst thing that can happen to you when you're up there, okay, if you look at the actual windshield charts and everything else that matter, you can end up with a situation where you're kind of zero degrees and you're getting a calm five kilometre an hour wind and that's going to take you down to minus 15.
1: Yeah
2: just like that okay and that's when you're going to start to feel it minus 15 your nose as you guys know anyway the hairs on your nose start to drop out everything starts to really really freeze up you know and you take that to another extreme where the wind does start to pick up more than that and your minus figures are going to start tumbling so you're on the lift okay you're with your two kids the first thing you should say to them is don't worry okay just calm down okay and if they start hyperventilating. You grab them, okay, and you look them in the in the eye, and you say, "Breathe with me, okay, breathe with me," and they get the rate of a breath that brings them down, that stops them from hyperventilating. Okay, years ago, they used to put a brown paper bag over the mouth, and you'd blow off your carbon dioxide enough for you to steady yourself, really, from a, from a trigger point of view. And yeah. that would be like before parachute accidents and what you. But what happens is, on that lift, okay in your backpack okay you should have a compressed duvet jacket you know something that goes down quite small yeah you can pull out that you can start rugging up okay you can start putting things on because you guys the same as me in in um the arctic we stripped everything off because we were skiing so hard so fast yeah. don't want to get sweaty so you you need your duvet jacket you need your, your Dachstein mitts or thick woolen mitts anyway yep um you need everything else. There is one thing I mentioned in there, which I think was a, was a good idea for you guys, is the majority of the time, majority of those things that I saw were people that had fallen out of the actual scare, uh, the, uh, chairlift. Yeah. around. And we've all done it. We've all kind of shouted to each other or thrown something at each other and all of a sudden someone's gone off, you know, from the bottom end. Yeah. But I would suggest what you put into your pack and recommend this to your skiers as well, is you can actually get a very small, thin, climb and tape okay it's not not heavy at all it's very very thin yeah. and put two carabiners on either end of that tape and if each of you carries one okay as a rule and um, then what you can have is you can actually pull it together and you create a lanyard that you can actually kind of drop down from or if the, the uh, cable car itself or the actual kind of the lift sorry the gondola itself is starting to look really dodgy you can actually throw it over the cable and then click
0: so the carabiners you get free when you buy two for the price of one. No. Are they okay? No, no. no. <laughs> I'm no. not using those. <laughs> a ski pole <laughs> seems like a better option than that.
2: <laughs> yeah, no. You are going to head south pretty quickly. I think I was, to be honest with you.
0: Yeah. You okay. So, okay. So a carabiner and a rope. <laughs> oh my god.
2: No, 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 no. It's not a rope. Look, just, okay. get, get away hey. thinking heavy, heavy. Okay. okay. It's really, in climb and take. Okay. A, a climb is used to actually go to the edge of the cliff to actually look down because they are carrying heavy equipment anyway. But yeah. you know, one of you has, it's, it's so light. It's unbelievable, yeah. you know? And the carabiner on the other end is an alloy carabiner, not a steel one. Okay. Alloys just as protective against, uh, most of them are rated to 3,500 kg, okay? But at the end of the day, uh, it's lighter than steel. So you, 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 you're all creating safety. But yeah. you're not increasing the weight in your backpack,
0: okay? Yeah, I, I already, like, I mean, I carry a backpack and feel naked without one, but already I think just even an addition of a couple of simple things like this mm. already make me actually feel better because I carry spare gloves, usually for the kids, and there's usually spare clothes in case someone's whinging, <laughs> and maybe it's just a small cheese platter. <laughs> I do something. Nice. But... <laughs>
3: What, what is sustainable that. food? What would you like? Yeah. You, yeah, yeah, What is sustainable
2: food for you to have in that backpack? Can, can I? I'll come on to that to me, but can I yeah. mention the backpack as well? Because that's a, that's another important point. Yeah. These backpacks themselves you can get, okay, and they're cheapest chips. And the cheapest chips ones normally kind of rip tear or whatever, as you know. Yeah. You get a backpack, okay, that's got some decent straps on them, okay, you can actually support that on your weight, uh, on your waist anyway. But the most important thing is that when you saw that kid, that was trapped with his backpack uh, on that video. Mm. Video that you you showed, you can see at the end of the day that you know he he needs to drop. He can't yes. stay there because his circulation is being cut off, and he's going to actually he's going to die.
0: Yeah.
2: So with a backpack, you can get them with the actual. We call them the K pox, which is the same as parachuting, where you press the the, the lugs and you, you get yeah. rid of the backpack.
0: Well, the the actual ski ones are. Fitted to your back, your back. So, mine actually, when you take it off, it's got the shape of your back, and then yeah. the strap two straps one and two here, and then the lace.
2: But that's also a good good point to make, Anne, because what happens is that so I did the cabino uh, a couple of years ago, and what happened was I got exactly that same rucksack because it creates a gap between the two, so you get the air coming through, so it stops you from sweating and then creating an ice block on your back as well. So, that's that's one yeah. that you know it actually comes out from there. But the backpack's quite important because. You want it light, you want it durable, you want to be able to get rid of it very quickly in the event of hanging from that particular kind of scenario. That, that's probably a rare case.
0: Yeah. I mean, I know that a lot of resorts, they say that whoever's down the bottom, they say take your backpacks off. But with the ski, ski-specific ski ones, you, can, you just quickly clip it and then flip it to your front. You're not going to get your little kids to hold it anyway. Like I've got their stuff in the backpack. So you're only going to be carrying a backpack if you're of a certain age and capability, kind of 15 and up anyway.
2: But the other things that you've got with the actual backpack as well is if you actually kind of slip and you fall on your back, you've got a buffer there with all your kit in it, okay, from that point of view. So it's a little bit of a safety feature as well uh, from that point of view.
3: Yeah, so a wine glass is not great to have in your backpack. No, <laughs> I'm
0: not like joking. You get
2: it.
0: I do have one that folds down though. No. Um, it's, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, it's, it. that's,
3: you know it's really interesting because you've got like people just go and buy a backpack and they go, yeah, yeah, that's the cheapest, that's it. But you've got to buy it for the right height, the right weight. I didn't know there was clips that you could actually undo that way around uh, your shoulders that you can see from your shoulders down. Yeah. I'm, I'm not a backpack wearer myself, so there's lots of things I have to do. I was never a helmet wearer. Yeah, so yeah, you were late I, to that party. Yeah, I, I was late to that party. I thought it was just going to be, you know, my peripheral vision was going to go. So, with helmets, you know, people just go and buy cheap helmets as well. Is that part of like, which can you no. what do you recommend?
2: No, no, you got to, you got to go for like this, this uh, Australian standards, as you know, probably Taniel, like yeah. you know, the different ones, like you know, and we had the same problem. We had people kind of wearing kind of uh, Bob the Builder hats, like you know, on uh, during riots, yeah, they, like you know, wouldn't sustain a kind of a heavy blow or a kind of a a shot or whatever. So everything's designed for the impact that you're likely to face. And the worst one would be sadly the Michael Schumacher really, when you're, you know, you're hitting a rock and all of a sudden like you know everything starts to fragment. So you know from my point of view, it's it's worth spending a bit more money on a lighter kind of uh Kevlar composite helmet. You know, so something that's that's durable and that at the end of the day, you know, will actually help you out. And also that it's fitted properly as well and the, the problem we've actually got with helmets is a lot of people don't even do up the chin straps so at the end of the day like you know it comes off or it's too loose
1: mm.
3: so yeah. it's having
2: a particular kind of chance to, to play around with it
3: so as a medic what has been the worst thing you've seen from a helmet injury gun Gen- no,
2: gun yeah. Yeah. gunshot no gunshot clean through the helmet through the head that's it you know but um it's it's been yeah pretty pretty full-on we've had survivors we've had gunshots where the bullets gone into the helmet and around the top and <laughs> out the other side you wow. Know, that was been we all got his lottery numbers for that weekend. You
0: know, <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, would you um say say just going back to the chairlift? Yeah. Um actually on the weekend I was sitting there with one of my sons and he said, What do you think we would do if we stopped or it started going backwards? Would we jump? And I wanted to give him the right advice, but I was, I mean, I my common sense just felt like, well, we're too high up here but we, we, if we would if we had to and we'd break a leg, what, what would you say?
2: Oh, let, there's two things I want to address here, okay? I want to address the actual the static one as well where you turn around and say what are you going to survive on You know, when, you're, when you're there. But let me come on to the, your point. The thing I noticed with the video is the speed of that lift was huge. You know, it was actually kind of very, very fast. The brakes have obviously kind of failed and it's just doing this loop. If you've got time and you hear these shouts and so on and so forth, Ditch your skis straight away, okay? Just ditch them, you know, uh, take the you know take them off from there if they're not already kind of taken off anyway, and then try and turn around so you can see where you're going you know, at the end of the day because if you're facing this way, you can't see anything at all. So if you can turn around, you've got a better chance of jumping off and finding out where your particular place is as opposed to jumping off backwards because in parachuting, all of our accidents happens with jumping off – or sorry, with landing backwards. Mm-hmm. We end up with a whiplash and a head injury to the back of the head. Whereas, if you can actually turn around quickly enough, okay, and have the real speed to do that, then you can actually roll forwards so and it's a much safer outcome for you.
0: Is there a way to land properly?
2: Yeah. What you do is basically it's the same as the parachute land. Okay. You keep your legs tucked in together.
1: Yeah. What you
2: do is you had your hands on top of your head here to protect you, your bone down. Okay. And you tuck everything in. So it's a bit like a judo roll. So as soon as you hit the ground, You'll spin over, okay? but at the end of the day, you're a, a very small bundle as opposed to hands out where you can break your arms, legs out where you can break your legs. So it's just tucking yourself in, bracing for impact effectively, it's the same as an airline really. Yeah, right.
3: What's it, the highest point you jumped from though before serious injury?
2: Oh, uh, well, that was an interesting one because the average there was around about the 25 foot, the 20, 25 yeah. foot. I, I mentioned that straight away. Yeah. And to tell you to Neil is that, you know, Let's take that worst-case scenario where the actual thing's moving this way and you're coming backwards. You know, you know roughly um, what the height is, you know, from there. But anyone in desperation, like, you know, I mean, some of the guys that were fed up the lift, up the actual chain anyway, were still thinking of jumping at uh, 20, 25 feet, you know, at that height. Yeah. yeah. You know, if you start slamming into those metal poles, I'm surprised no one was killed that that uh, uh, piece of footage.
0: Yeah, so just, I mean, for people that are just listening and haven't seen it, you can Google accident in Bulgaria. Yeah, we can put a link in our show notes. So another
3: thing on the chairlift, again, getting back to a chairlift, is is you're up there for a long time. Like we were in Canada, back in Canada again, at our highest point, there was no chance we were jumping. Yeah. but we were there for 25 minutes and the lift kept going backwards. And we we're like, oh my gosh. Because you are taught if a lift goes backwards, it's a detachable quad, it's gonna the, the grip's gonna open and it's gonna fall off, you know. It did happen in Whistler. But apart from that, we were thinking, we are getting really cold now. So hypothermia, you know, on a chairlift, it can happen anywhere, really. Yeah. So so what how can you do you huddle together? What do you do?
2: Okay, so basically, this was one of our particular main concerns. Was it was frost, frostbite, frostnip, and hypothermia. And uh, the hypothermia is called a non-freezing cold injury in medical terms. Yep. <clears throat> and what happens is, with hypothermia, is the temperature drops below mon- below 35 degrees, I should say. And as soon as it drops below f- 35 degrees, your body is not creating enough energy, okay, to cope with that particular element. Yep. So if you think about it, okay, if you stand up now, all of your blood is going through to your periphery, to your fingers, to your toes, to everywhere else, okay? Mm -hmm. So with hypothermia, what you want to try and do is conserve that. So instead of your legs dangling over the side of the chairlift, instead of your arms being up here, if you huddle into a ball, okay, and you huddle into a ball together, okay, you've got more chance of actually stopping that hypothermic kind of process going. And again, what you'll be doing is making sure you're putting all your layers on, you're trying to get your your beanies on and everything else that matter, and you literally, you know, and again, this is where that tape comes in handy as well. If you can kind of lasso it around everyone, because again, you're a little bit unstable when you come into a vault. Yeah. But keeping together is the most important point. I mean, when we had hypothermic cases, we'd often slide into the sleeping bag with the individual who's hypothermic and then create that radiant heat from ourselves into that sleeping bag. So yeah. it's the same deal as well, where you actually got everyone together to to pull together. You're stopping the excess blood going out into the periphery okay you're bringing everything back into the core, so the core then is your heart that's sending the blood up to the brain to refresh the brain to bring it back down again, and you're saving energy really from that, that point of view
0: what is the what's the indicator that takes it from not very good to bad like I was skiing down with one with no glove on, just mm-hmm. filming and then I thought okay i'm numb in the hand, so I kind of put it back in but what is it when does it cross over from? That scenario to something more serious.
2: Okay, you have got three levels. Um, you've actually got the first level is called like a chill blade level. Okay, where at the end of the day you get these little waxy little lumps on your fingers, and that's just basically that's a touch temperature kind of thing. You know, uh, just a little bit of an indicator to you that's not good. The next one is a frost nip, and we often used to see frost nip. And one of the things I'll, I'll stress to your your listeners anyway is if you are going uh, extreme or whatever, you know, you need to be actually be in a buddy buddy system. Mm-hmm. A body body system means that you look at each other's faces because that's the extremities really where frostnip happens and the first sign is a demarcation uh, line itself whether it's on the nose where you see a, a like a line appearing and you see like a waxy yellow image appearing on the nose and you can tell straight away you know it does it looks odd I mean most of our guys when we were filming for the BBC for instance in the Arctic or whatever uh they'd be standing there for ages uh you know with the film and the wind would be kind of coming through, and all of a sudden, you could see it straight away you know, this big waxy kind of thing there. Mm. So, if you don't get onto that within, the, within half an hour, it goes to the next phase. Okay. The next phase, as far as we're concerned, is the frostbite phase. And frostbite itself has a number of phases, three phases in particular, where at the end of the day, you can't rewarm that waxy uh, patch. And what happens is it then actually goes to the actual levels of uh, tissue under the skin. So, it's starting to create more of a a frozen kind of scenario where everything's frozen underneath the skin. And the worst case would be the level three, level four, where the bones and the tendons uh, become frostbite.
0: So you know when people have the um, silver, they have the silver blanket, are they effective or are they useless because they look a bit useless?
2: No, not not for frostbite. I mean, the only thing you're going to, look, the thing is with with the actual space blanket itself, it's very, well, it is effective for hypothermia. But the first thing you need to do in any particular case like that, let's say, for instance, give you a scenario you've fallen off the lift and you're miles from anywhere. And, and that, like you said before, it's not being patrolled or whatever. Um, the first thing uh, first, we teach everybody, is to get together and get to shelter. Okay, dig a shelter, get into the tree line or whatever, where it's going to be, going to be less cold. Most of my um, really bad drops in temperature were skiing across lakes or on the periphery of lakes where the end of the cold itself was was bitter. You know, it would drop drop quite quickly. So you get into a protective tree line. You actually dig yourself a little snow scrape and uh, you get a bit of shelter there. Then you huddle together. And then the next thing you need to do from a survivability point of view is to get help, send for help, because people, what they do is they get this particular weird thing where they think they can sort everything out. (laughs) And then then what happens is, is like two hours go by or whatever. And someone goes, oh, shit, well, we thought we'd sorted out, but we haven't. And in the meantime, no one's sent for help. So you've already exposed yourself for two hours needlessly.
0: What about if someone's injured? Like let's say they've got um, like ankle, hurt their ankle, sprained their ankle, broken their ankle. I mean, should we be factoring that into throwing a few extras into our backpack?
2: I've got that here. Yeah, I've got it written down. So basically one of the things that we used to have, which we use on a regular basis, and I don't know if you ever used it, but it's a bandage called Moban, C-O-B-A-N, and uh, it's a stretch bandage okay oh, yeah. it's made of velcro so what happens is like you know you create a stirrup so the stirrup itself is where the bandage goes on the outside of the ankle all the way underneath to the other side so you cut that and again you can't do that in the open because you get cold i i tried to stitch a guy in the open and my fingers went frostbitten yeah you've got to go into a a uh you know a, a little culvert or a where the wind itself if it's coming over the top or whatever you're not going to be affected by it so you can be more effective from delivering first aid but you get that stirrup on the individual, okay, and then what you do is you wrap the bandage around until it becomes kind of calf height. And that stirrup is enough to actually create a, an external ligament, effectively, which keeps your foot in that position so it stops it from rotating from, you know, kind of going left or right or forward or whatever. And often that's enough to get it back in the boot again to to get you skiing again, okay, to get wow. you Wow. Let's to get it with. back
3: into the boot again the pain do you pay should you have pay, like pain medication
1: <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah good
2: we wait we, we also need to neil um and again i have mentioned this in my book as um because i was the medic on the commando course as well is i found that uh the injuries that were that were sustained were horrific okay they were bilateral fractures bilateral kind of inversion of ankles yeah. and the problem is with these guys they still wanted to carry on because the be, the kind of the sense of, of getting that Green Beret was was huge. So what I did, what I carried was I carried uh, like codeine-based drugs. So d one one eight they were called. And uh, and I mixed that with Brufin. And that is a perfect combination for you, okay, a Brufin and a Panadol, because the Panadol is going to be a pain relief and the Brufin is going to be kind of a, 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 a an anti-swelling and it will bring it all down.
3: So do you need, is it Voltaren 25, a Brufin? Yep. Is that yep. what we're talking about? Oh, okay.
2: You take them together. That's the yeah. thing. You know, yeah. There's no conflict between the two. Yeah. Um, what I was lucky enough to have is these DF118. I don't even think you can get them nowadays. But these, when I'd actually kind of dose some of the guys up, like you know, they would fly just to get them through to to the Friday and then have a rest day on the Saturday. Um, but it's, the thing is with the actual lig with the ligament inside of it when you've when you've inverted an ankle for those who've had it before, I'm sure everyone has. Um, the the strap in itself is yeah. good enough because it actually expands and contracts okay with the leg and uh, whereas if you get elastoplast and you put that on there okay you're going to cause so much damage because it's not got any particular way of swelling
1: my arm so interesting
2: yeah
3: yeah so you, yeah wow so how do you get them down if they can't even get it in do you do you make something with your skis is there some type of or like that rope comes in handy again, doesn't it, to drag them down through if you're in backcountry? Yeah, exactly.
2: Crazy. So you've got like a, a tether. You know, Em, you mentioned something about, uh, or was it some, no, it was actually, it was my my partner, uh, Carly mentioned that uh, at the end of the day she got stuck in a slope like a guy had to get her down. He just gave her his pole. Just, you know, snowplow behind me. We'll just do it really, really gently all the way down. Yeah, of
3: course. Do you find common sense kicks in with a lot of people or they
2: pain? No, no, it doesn't. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. what, what happens is common sense goes out the window. Yeah. And what we found, we found we were kind of seeing people uh, carrying people when they can walk. You yeah. know what I mean? And yeah. what are you doing that for? You know, just jump down, mate, and you can carry on walking. You know? Well,
0: but, the other thing is before we get to the outbound stuff, a common thing is even a wide out. You can oh. be totally in bounds. You can be somewhere. You can be away from your group or whatever, and you just can't see up and down.
2: Yeah. And it can
0: come over in a in an instant. So what do you like I had a bad
2: situation where somebody, I will not say who he was because it will embarrass him, but he, he professed to be this brilliant ski guide when I first came to Australia. And we got to the top of Threadboat, uh, ready to do a cross-country ski. And all of a sudden, like, you know, I didn't have any goggles. Uh, I couldn't really see. And that's exactly what happened then, was the actual snow came in at 45 degrees. Yeah. Piercing, really, really piercing. So for me, uh, I then said to him, like, you know, uh, I'm not feeling the love. You know, I was tugging on his particular jacket. and. What we did, okay, and this will probably give you an idea about what you should do. What we did was we actually kind of almost did a huge, big loop all the way around in the whiteout because I showed them on the GPS, and that's another thing I want to cover off with you as well.
1: Yeah.
2: And then what happened was we only really found that out when we got down. But I'd make a call. We had a call in the military in the, in, in the Arctic. It was called turn back in time. You know, and if you can turn back in time, like you'll you definitely save a life. You know, you won't think about going any further than that. But in a whiteout. Our, our routine or our drill was if we were next to the objective or whatever we carry on skiing but if we felt that we were going to be really stuck for days we'd just stop dig ourselves in and then create a shelter you know until such times as the actual bite out kind of disappeared from that.
0: I think turn back in time would be very appropriate when we head out of eagle's nest, don't you think Tony? Yeah. <laughs> Top of bow.
2: Yeah back in time the bars going to close.
0: <laughs> so um I'm just thinking, checking off what other injuries, um, knees, shoulders, head, have you got anything kind of simple for like just being realistic for skiers and snowboarders who yeah. are at this stage inbound, but maybe separated? You're out going wide at air or. Hey,
2: look, the thing is for me, and I, I would stress it, is my just a simple GPS, okay? You can buy them for a hundred bucks or some of like that, and you put it in your backpack, spare a set of batteries, and then basically what can happen is as soon as something happens okay you can then actually explain to somebody where your coordinates are because it's like finding a needle in a haystack yeah if you're in the middle of nowhere there's a whiteout and something happens at least if you've got a phone signal or a sat phone you're able to give them the coordinates you know from where you are and And actually this this one as well folks i don't know if you've used it before but um what i find that when we teach them on a survival course is there's a thing called a breadcrumb route, <clears throat> and you just press it and you mm-hmm. can see the where you've come from. So you can actually ski the line yeah. all the way back down to where you've actually kind of come from.
3: What's what is it called? Because like, people can't see this vision.
2: So this will be look, it's a, it's a it's a standard Garmin GPS map, which is a yep. US, and that's a colored map. And then what you get before you go out there, which is brilliant, you can actually download the map to your GPS. So whatever resort you go into, you'll have the full map on there. And it yeah. will tell you exactly where you are on the actual uh, uh, on the actual display here.
1: Yeah. And then
2: you're able to turn around to somebody and explain, look, I know it's a whiteout. We're actually stuck in this little hole at the moment. We're all good. Yeah. We're all like, but here's my grid coordinates. Yeah. And the grid coordinates for where you are. That's that's the other thing that people make a really bad mistake on. And we, we labor that on the actual uh, training course. Something happens. You all go to ground. Someone gets on the phone. It might only have one bar left on the phone. And they don't give anyone the location. Do
0: you know, it's funny because last week when we were thinking about this podcast episode, I was heading to the snow and I was thinking of all the things we wanted to ask you. And a lot of the stuff even about steps to take if you're in a group and get separated, in my mind I was thinking, oh, I don't know, maybe it's a bit ridiculous. But in reality, when we were down in the snow for three days, we had families and kids everywhere yeah. And it was just so interesting to see that we literally all separated most oh, but, of the day. Like half the time someone will turn around and go, where's so-and-so? You haven't seen them because you're assuming they're somewhere or whatever. So it might sound a bit extreme, but actually it's completely it, our reality. It, on that
2: reality. Here. And that's what happens, like, you know, is all of a sudden people actually kind of go to the next level. They're getting really caught out on the adrenaline buzz. Okay, we're having a great time. You know, the weather was beautiful. What I suggest that you do, you know, with, with people who, who definitely are going to go off and do what I call it the bomb burst. Everyone does their own thing. You just turn around, and if you've got a GPS or whatever, again, give everyone. You know, you just set it as home. Just yeah. Press the button, and that's the home. So at the end of the day, if someone's going to actually go missing or whatever, you're coming back to home. Everyone knows where home is.
1: Yeah.
2: And that's the that's the meeting point for everybody. Yeah,
3: it's true. It's true. You need to have that conversation, don't you, at the start of the lodge every day? Okay, home. It
2: is, is- – yeah. the
3: lodge, or yeah. if you haven't got a
2: lodge on the snow, home is this. No yeah, you are, it, it could be a trig point. It could be kind of a yeah. spiral. It could be a river, you know, wherever you can yeah. see. And then yeah. you got little symbols on there that you change. And once you've got everyone set, at least they've got somewhere to go back to, okay, from there. And yeah. it's quite a fun thing to do as well for the kids. Yeah,
0: no, it's a great idea, especially for the teenagers because now they're all getting to be that they want to go off and, I'm getting phone calls all day saying where are you, where here or whatever. So I, it yeah, it's all just comfort points, which is really good. Have you got anything else to ask, Daniel, before we hit the outbounds issues? No, no. I, I mean inbound it's just safety, you know, you
3: should read your the there's a skier chart. What's it called? The uh ski etiquette. Yes, way, way to the downhill skier, kind of stuff like that. I think people just need to be reminded about that sometimes before they hit the slopes because you know, a lot of injuries do happen when people just are going beyond their ski ability.
2: <laughs> I've seen it before. Like, you know, I actually took up my uh, my head instructor, not realising who he was like, and I actually kind of really blindsided him and threw him straight into the, um, into the bushes, which wasn't a good idea because I ended up kind of cleaning. <laughs> For
0: quite a long <laughs> time. <laughs> my, dad, my dad's got a story. He's um, 81, but he always tells the story about when he was about 18 and went overseas with his cousin and they all had a lesson day one and the cousin said stuff this I'm over the lesson. And then the next day they're all lined up with the Austrian instructor. Yeah. <laughs> overcomes the overcomes Richard flying over the hill in front of the, <laughs> the glass. My dad's like, Richard. <laughs> Should have taken the lesson. <laughs> you know, a family joke, Richard. Yeah. All right. So, all right, out of out of bounds scenario. So people listening to this might think, I'm not that good, I'm intermediate, I'm, you know, advanced, I'm never going to go out of bounds. But the reality is when people hit Japan, yeah. Japan is a big draw card for people who want to take that step outside those typical western snow resorts. The lure is that you, uh, you, it's it's the wild wild west in a lot of these places. And I'm going to read you a um comment from um mates of ours about Naseko. They they live there for part of the year and Sue, I know you listen to us on Spotify on your um treadmill, so yeah, I'm going to put it up to 10. Give it a bit. Um, Okay, so they say I don't have any confidence in the Japanese medical professionals and their ski patrollers don't carry any significant pain relief, no green whistles. I've seen people with tib, fib fractures out on the meat wagon where they zip you up and cover your face and taken down with no pain relief. They use the army often for search and rescue, but with the weather, it's often hard to get aircraft up, so it can take time. I don't think many resorts have RECO, um, which is the rescue system, but remember, most resorts, you aren't allowed to ski out of bounds, so rescue is your responsibility and it's expensive. And he also goes on to make a comment about how many people are just hitting the gates out the back. Um, We see people heading into the backcountry often without necessary equipment. Um, they'll often follow tracks and people think they look like they know where they're going. Many tourists won't know how to find the local avalanche reports, although in Niseko they're at the entrance and exit of most lifts, particularly those that surface the backcountry gates. Like most resorts, beginners slash intermediates traversing above, riders below is always an issue as it's tourists not knowing that most of the runouts in Japan are terrain traps.
3: I think um, what the big issue in Japan is, I agree with all of that, but there's also like people get fallen to the track, oh, it's only side country. That's become this play around word. But side country is actually where those tourists are going into, which are the traps.
2: So, yeah, you're right, it's because basically, you know, it's dressed up as something else. But what happens is, in my experience, anyway, everything starts to look the same. And also, you know, you completely use your particular orientation and you end up in the next valley or the next run or whatever and you haven't even got a clue what's going
1: on. That
3: is 100% right because you think, hey, I've only traversed. And, and when you do traverse, you kind of go, oh, yeah, there was two valleys, you know, and, and it's not two valleys. And then you look down and you go, that doesn't look familiar. And then all of a sudden you were way out of bounds, <laughs> you know.
1: Uh,
2: yeah, you come across one valley and it's gone into a three-finger valley, okay, and yeah. you take one finger. Do you know what I mean? So you still think it's the same and it's yeah. not
1: we've yeah, yeah. that <laughs> yeah
2: yeah i mean Can I just touch upon something else a bit just to to round off because i think the backpack is god okay the backpack is your ultimate kind of thing that you need for that backcountry stuff yeah and, and i've just written down a couple of things that that we had and again i'm i'm of the opinion okay that it's all got to be sensible stuff it's not going to be anything heavy cumbersome or whatever you know it's something for you to take with you and even if you had one backpack between a few of you or whatever like you know then Someone takes out the safety pack. You know, that, that's it really. But but again, if you're going to be bomb bursting, you you need the minimum of kit in each pack anyway. There's a there's a little you know your your slings so to speak that you've got with your carabiners on. If they're day-glow orange or something like that, you can use them as air panels. So you can lay them in the snow, you know, so that at least anyone can see you from there because it's oh, yeah. quite tricky to see anyone. Uh, in yeah. With some clothing on.
1: Yeah, that's great.
2: Um, so that's that's a really important thing. Uh, a knife collapsible knife you'd be surprised how many people don't take a knife with them but it just has to be a little pocket knife or whatever Mm. at the end of the day you know i like the Leatherman tool which i've got uh, which is again a little multi-tool like that Yep. and again you know whether you've kind of repaired a ski or you pulled something up or you've on a you know tightened a screw you know Mm. something like that in a backpack or even carry it on your belt if you got you know your kind of sell pets or whatever like you know you can actually have that there with you (laughs) yeah good piece of kit. Uh, a mini torch. Okay, little kind of the yeah. – um, but I, the ones you get in your beanie, have you ever seen – yeah. they're just as good.
0: Oh, I, t- I got one of those for my birthday one year, the head torch.
2: <laughs> well, that's it. The thing is, it's either the head torch itself separate. Yeah. But what I'm saying is that yeah. what I found is that you can't carry flashlights and things. You don't need them. You need something so you've got your hands free. Yeah. Are
0: they, the head torches as good as a flashlight?
2: Is there any, like, are they... The, the, the LED ones are brilliant nowadays. And you can actually have them in red, flash in red as well for emergency. Yeah. So there's all the different settings you've actually got on there. And I like the one that's integrated into the beanie. I've give my daughter went on the Duke of Ed the other day and she got my beanie with the actual the light thing. So you just press it and away you go. Yeah. Place the batteries. Now, you mentioned something to Neil about the actual food side of it. What would you take on the, on the slopes? Okay. Yeah. If you there's two ways you can look at this you can actually have the rehydrated rations which i was explaining to emma about that you can get in in uh, the camping shops nowadays in anaconda review they're a little expensive but you, there's a sleeve with food in it and that's it and that's enough to give you at least about 1500 calories they've made it that way that you actually kind of pump up the calorie intake but you can get the dehydrated ones as well which are light but the trick with that is you'd have to have a small stove, which we've—I carry a small stove around everywhere, be a little tiny one about that big. Yeah. So a small gas bottle, and that is brilliant because if you've got it in your backpack and you get stuck on the chairlift, okay, you can get that out and you've got heat for a little while.
0: There's your fire. Exactly. So you also need a um, a lighter,
2: yeah. Yeah, a lighter. Okay. From there, now coming on to coming on to the. Sorry, I'm bouncing around a bit, but the shelter itself—if if, God forbid you're caught out and you need to get that shelter going. It's very hard to get uh, timber to light in the actual, in the snow lines and wherever you like, because sometimes it's been saturated or whatever.
1: Right,
2: yeah. yeah. What I find is that uh, I carry a tiny little, you know those little camera rolls that you used to get, like, you know, to put your... your yeah, yeah. They,
3: they put cigarette butts in now. I'm not a smoker, but they yeah, do. Yeah, like, exactly. yeah, exactly.
2: And you can take them home with them or whatever, like you know. Yeah, yeah. What I do to Neil is I get uh, some Vaseline and I mix it with cotton wool and I put that in there with the top on. And then you can smear that on anything to light, and it'll it'll create a, a napalm effect.
1: Yeah!
2: Wow. Okay. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah, a, you know? definitely. It's, it's it's we used to use it. We, that's the thing we recommend in our survival courses because you can light it and it will carry on burning, and it sticks to the actual wood, so it actually kind of dries the wood out, and then it ignites it as well. You know, and simple kind of little solution. And also the vaseline you can use for lips, so double purpose again as well.
3: Yeah. So, what, what about, I mean, like, because your eye would you take eye drops because your eyes in really cold temperature, they seem to freeze, or would the eye drops make that worse?
2: No, the eye drops will probably make it worse as well. Yeah. Um, basically, you've, you've got to try and see if you can stick with your goggles. And if you can't, if you haven't got any goggles, you make them out of cardboard or something anyway.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's the thing with, when you're in really, really cold, everything freezes together. Mm. Yeah. It's the worst. So we were talking like you you deal a lot with people in your role. Um, how do you choose a buddy to go cross country to go out the back with you to go oh well,
0: that's <laughs> the thing you see you see on these forums they're going, oh, I want to go down for the season. Does anyone want to buddy up? And I'm thinking,
3: Yeah, who you who are you? <laughs> yeah, I kind of that that scares me a bit. Like, I mean, sometimes I just go, Wow, would my husband save me? <laughs> 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 no,
1: But <laughs> yeah, it dumb. is
3: a really key thing to going backcountry is who you ski with and who you buddy up
2: with.
3: Yeah. Is it a good idea for these guys to go, hey, I'm going backcountry. You want to come with me? Would you do uh,
2: look, that? That's your start point, isn't it, really? You know, and you can't actually kind of dismiss that because that's exactly how, it's, you know, a friend of mine's just done it to me. He's going, because he, as I said to him, like, you know, he goes out and does his particular telemark scheme, which I'm looking forward to what I'm doing. Yeah. But I wouldn't take my son on that. Okay, straight away. Yeah, you know, my son's gotta learn how to ski. So it's it's not just the buddy, it's the competency of the buddy. Yeah. And what you don't want is you don't want the person who at the end of the day doesn't want to take the safety pack, is not really asked about what's going on, like you know, wants to kind of fly blind or whatever, he wants to do everything. You
0: wanna you wanna have like a high wigger benchmark, right? You know, people that wig out. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. we
0: well, used to say for surfboat rowing, I wouldn't want you in my surfboat. Anyone yeah. who wigs out easily.
2: And, and look at what I found, really, in my own particular, you know, the commando environment, some of the extra courses we were on. Often the best leader was the silent one, the person who didn't say anything. And then all of a sudden they came to the fore and, and they just went boom, 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 you know, know exactly what to do, where you go. But the, I can't stress this enough. Number one is fitness, okay? Number one is mental agility. Sorry, number two is mental agility. And number three is probably stamina as well, is that are they really up to all of this? And if they're not... What I would say is they are a liability, okay, because that's what's going to happen. You're going to be the person that's going to have to look after them, you know, at the end of the day. To add a few more things on your first aid kit. Okay, so on your, yeah, so the Cobalt side of it, two first field dressings. Sorry? They're, They're called first field dressings, like compressed little kind of military dressings, shell dressings. Yeah, Okay. Yes. So
0: do, do you get like? Do we walk into us like? Where do we get those from? Like, and yeah,
2: what do we ask? Yeah, the, the actual uh, what's happened now is they recognise how good they are. You can actually buy them from some of the pharmacy stores or whatever, and they're called wound dressings. Oh,
0: oh yeah, that the flat ones with the
2: no, no, the cut. Well, they're flat, but they're like a little kind of square pack. Then. So, yep. And so, and what happens is when you open it up, it actually expands, so it actually absorbs blood, really, really good. Okay. Okay, and then it's all clean as well, so it's all.
3: So could you just go and buy Saint John's first aid kit, little one, and then add to that? Like, is it is it even worth that, or just start your own, create no, your
2: own? Start, start your own <laughs> because what I found, Tony, is that um, some of the stuff in the Saint John's kit is shit and useless. I uh, shouldn't say that on the podcast, but
3: no, but it is. Like, that's why I asked the question because you buy it because that's what we get told, and then you open it up, and you're like, it's a band aid for a finger wound.
2: That's right. <laughs> so, in essence, what you're thinking about is your multiple trauma stuff. So, in other words, someone does have a fractured femur and it's a compound fracture where the bone comes through or whatever what are you going to do well the first thing you mentioned anyway is that i would also suggest that you try and get on a remote trauma first aid course not just a first aid course mm-hmm. because the remote trauma one will give you the actual kind of the edge on improvisation as well uh because you know at the end of the day you're going to be stuck there for a little while yeah but the bandages themselves like you know we always go for true to trauma presence Mm-hmm. and two triangular bandages the space bank that we talked about and uh, what you can do is um there's a, a little splint it's a lightweight thing that you i put it in my rucksack okay around the out there the inside of the rucksack and you pull it out and you can use it as a neck collar oh
0: yeah
2: yeah it's pretty good pretty cool So,
0: do you get those from pharmacies as well because i haven't seen yeah. them in between the chapstick and the
2: now, now that you can get them pharmacies, and basically what they are is they are called uh, frac splints, F R A splints, yeah. They're really lightweight, yeah. but they're good well from there. Uh, you can use them for, you know, for splinting your arms, splinting the legs or whatever, and then wrapping the bandage around from there. So yeah. Wow. And then
0: you haven't um, mentioned
2: water. Well, to be honest with you, <laughs> we... The bottom line is is that you've got water all around you. You know, we, we never, ever took water out in the Arctic with us, ever. Mm. In fact, you know, I think I think they left it to you to understand or to, to, to decide what you were going to do for your first parade before you got in the helicopter to go out into the wilderness. And a couple of guys had water <laughs> and he just went like that and threw the water cancelling away. Like, he went, you don't need it because you've got it all around you.
1: Yeah.
2: You've got something to boil water with or whatever you can drink from there anyway. Yeah. Just fact, don't
3: drink yellow water, you know.
2: it's going to freeze anyway yeah
3: yeah well that's true isn't it yeah I um, never even thought about that yeah yeah yeah, well survival I mean you you think oh you taught that since a kid you know you're 70% water make sure you drink enough water but it's but when you're in the snow it's all around you so you do have to
0: really think common sense should kick in again shouldn't it really
2: (laughs) What about
0: falling into a creek? So that is really common. That's inbounds, outbounds.
2: Just a quick one on the water, though, because this is an important one for your listener.
0: Okay.
2: If you grab the water and you think you can take it in your mouth and let it all kind of, you know, come down here and it'll kind of, you're going to get cramped because it's cold inside your stomach, okay? It might be giving you the water that you need, but you're going to feel really bad. So the best way you can actually do that is to stop, shelter, fire, and then get the actual the water boiled, ready for you to actually kind of drink it as well.
3: And then sip, not scowl.
2: Yes, definitely, because Absolutely. basically, you know, you want to kind of preserve what you've got, and then that way you just continue to actually kind of grab your water from the actual the shelter itself and then start to uh, to heat it up. But generally the water's going to be clean, you know, it's kind of yes. fr- fresh snow, but you've got you know, potential contamination from kind of wildlife or whatever. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you boil it, you know, you've got no problems at all, and it's 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 all good to go.
0: Yeah.
2: yeah and what were you saying?
0: um falling into a creek it's really really common yeah inbounds outbounds okay a creek coming down on the wrong spine crossing a creek. okay so rescuing from a creek
2: the rescue from a creek is quite an interesting one because um what you've actually got is someone's gone in okay let's look at the actual hypothetical someone's gone in okay and they've dropped in and they've actually kind of you can see what's happened they've actually you know disappeared so what's happened what, on that video that you showed us, okay, where the guy did go in, everybody did the right thing. They stopped, okay, because basically what's going to happen is that you're either going to trigger potentially a spin drift avalanche over the top, you know, or yeah. Yeah. or yeah, or what you're going to do is you're going to widen that crack that's there anyway with the weight that you've actually got with all of you coming to the one particular point to see what's going on.
0: Oh, we're talking about the 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 down the crack. Down the crevice
2: one. Yeah, yeah. So it can okay. either be a creek or a crevasse. So basically you've actually got that from that point of view. And if that's the worst case scenario, it's a crevasse and someone has fallen, okay, into the crevasse. Yeah, You can't go any further than that. You've got to establish just exactly whether they've survived that particular fall, first of all, because you don't want to be the next casualty to go in there. Mm-hmm. And what you'd be doing is setting up um, like an observation stance to figure out whether there's any cracks anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And, uh, getting their person in the crevasse to, to actually describe exactly which way the crevasse is running, okay, because you're blind. You can't see it until they actually tell you exactly what's going on. Do you know what I mean? Yeah,
3: yeah. yeah. Should you approach from the
0: top or from the bottom?
2: From the side, okay. You've got to be at the side. They,
0: were, they were doing that in the video, weren't they? That was bad. Yeah. He was on they the side. The right
2: yeah, they come see? from the side, okay, yeah. because the top or the bottom, you know, you, you can actually have that kind of pulling away, especially if it's the river one anyway. Yeah. Now, the thing is with the river one, it's kind of interesting. If the river one was, they've had an accident, like fractured femur, fractured leg or whatever, uh, again, you don't want to be falling into that particular river position. And you don't want to be going under the snow line into the the, uh, the river if it's flowing. Yeah. Because that's the worst case scenario. You're not going to see anyone after that. If they're You're gone. never
3: going to know where they're
2: going to end up. Bloody hell. Like, yeah, probably the next ski season. Like, you know, they'll be next to the lodge. Uh, yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> with a drink in the hand. <laughs> uh, <That's fun. laughs> that borderline one is—that's where you've got your slings and your carabiners. Remember, I said to you before, they can actually use them for multiple things. Yeah, yep. lifeline around a tree, and you throw them the lifeline, they can clip in, and you can pull them out from there. You don't yeah. have to at the edge, okay? And that's something else that you you want to you know think about. However, when you've got them out, okay, and they're soaking, the first thing you need to do is to go to safety away from the water's edge, okay, or anywhere for that matter and you need to roll them in the snow when you roll them in the snow the snow actually absorbs all the water okay that they've actually got on their body first of all that's what that's our drill for ice breaking for going into the ice in the lake
0: well wow, i would not think to do that i just wouldn't.
2: but it's it's a phenomenon it's you'll see it's, it's quite remarkable because it takes off a lot of the excess water yeah right and then you're left with a particular person now what you can then do is they need to get stripped off pretty quickly to, because they're going to start freezing quite, you know, unless you can get to safety very quickly if it's in the middle of nowhere and you need to get their wet clothes off. And, again, you go to your shelter, you get your fire or your little stove going, and you swap clothes. Okay, you try and see if you can kind of make sure that, you know, they've actually got something to change into or whatever.
1: Now, what's the
3: fastest way to make shelter if you're not near a tree and you're out back and you've only got snow? Is it dig the, dig a hole. the wall? Dig a hole. Get them in a hole.
2: Yeah, Because basically, to be honest with you, Tunil, most of the top surface, as you said before, at the very beginning of the interview, was like you know, it tends to be kind of spin drifty,
1: yeah.
2: And sometimes you get through, like you know, compact kind of snow. But if you drop uh into that that hole, you dig it all the way around, you can even use your hands or whatever. Uh, so at some stage, you're going to hit with the actual the uh the kind of the ice shelf or whatever, yep. And you all get um, in there, so you're just coming out of that particular uh the snow line itself. Try and get into yeah, to the tree line or the shelter there because that does take a, a lot of the actual wind away, create yep. a break or whatever, you know, from there.
3: Yeah. So in Australia it rains a lot and we have a lot of kids that just hang out there in the rain and they're just saturated all the way through, you know, and they're, it's, I just hate seeing those kids like that because, you know, being a ski instructor forever, they used to go, yeah, go out, it's just raining, you, you'll be fine. But it's not a great thing, is it, for, like, parents to send their children out in the rain, in the snow because...
2: Well, as a, I gave you that example. You know, I ended up yeah. like with minus thirty, minus thirty-five, then plus two, then minus thirty-five. So they become ice blocks. You know, that's that's what's going to happen after yeah. the comes the snow. The thing I would I would say really, and I learned this on this the Camino track that I did. It's invest in a very good waterproof jacket. Okay, yeah. at the end of the day, that will just roll off from there, like you know, and don't skimp on the money. If you can buy yeah. a jacket for three hundred dollars or whatever, four hundred dollars, go for it. I made the mistake on the Camino because we thought it was going to be Camino going across the whole of Spain. It was yep. going to be warm all the way through yeah. until we got to um, Lyon. And we got to Lyon and the mountains came in from there. And uh, as we were going through the mountains, like in Galicia, the temperatures dropped and it started snowing. And the only thing that saved me, it wasn't my waterproof jacket. That actually kind of was like a tea bag; It leaked like anything.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's
2: what I paid, you know, I don't know 150 bucks for or whatever. Yeah. Uh, because it wasn't there's different levels of jacket which people don't know about. Is yeah. higher waterproof jacket, and after a certain time, it's rated to penetrate. It's rated to go through. Yeah. yeah. But you want to go for the the higher rated one anyway for the you know the, uh, the tighter cotton and the Gore-Tex. What I bought on the trail was I bought a simple poncho, okay for fifteen euro, and I've still got it, and I put it on me, and it was it just fitted over the whole of me, all of my rucksack, my backpack. Yeah. And, I, and the rain just ran off from there, so it never went on my feet.
3: sounded like an emergency poncho that you take to the football.
2: Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, Yeah, wow. Simple, cheap, you know, and at the end of the day, it, it did the job because it was actually kind of almost like wax lined on the inside.
0: I think we had those ponchos one year for the inter-school skiing. That's when we knew that we weren't going to do inter-school skiing and we had to stand oh. there and rain ponchos. That's <laughs> the thing about um, kids' ski gear is that, you know, we're short, sure, Go to Audi. Go to the snow sale. If you're not sure if you're going to get your kids into it, if they like it, but once they do like it, it comes back to that quality. Investing yeah. in it because I notice if I put Billy in um, Audi stuff, and, yeah. and we've got it all day at inclement weather over at Blue Cow or something, yeah. you put her in good quality stuff, she just has a better day. So it comes back to that quality. And- in the in the world that you've travelled in the snow, does it,
3: I mean I know Australia is it. It changes really really fast like you can have a beautiful day and then all of a sudden in comes the southerly and you know and you've got snow going sideways will actually rain or you know yeah. is that everywhere in the world that you've traveled doing your snow yeah rivals yeah, yeah.
2: Okay. You, know what the actual, you know what the adage is okay what the actual uh the definition is And this, this is our military one as well yeah uh, what we used to say there's no such thing as bad weather only bad equipment and kit there you go Honestly, you yeah. can, if you've got some decent kit. doesn't matter whether that rain's coming in. It's 45 degrees or whatever. You can survive it. You know, you've got warmth. You've actually got comfort. You feel as if you can get from A to B. And, it, and we can, you can do it anywhere. Like, you know, as I said, you know, the Camino was one track that we did. Uh, I was I took my lad up to um, Kosciuszko the other day. And uh, we went on a yomp, you know, and got his rucksack. And, and the, the actual girl at the top there, she turned on and she goes, that is so good to see. And I said, what, father and son? And she goes, no people taking equipment up because she yeah. goes, check this out. And she got she me to stand there and she watched all these people coming up, including the Japanese tourist. It was a <laughs> girl in high heels.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: it was like. he like, also
1: oh, go. Oh, my gosh,
3: I was- would hope that they would stop them down the bottom.
2: <laughs> no, <know>, but they <laughs> don't. And that's that comes to the point of what you're saying about, like, you know, not having someone patrolling or looking after them. You know, the Japanese situation, which, you know, all of a sudden the ski, uh, the lift guy disappears for an hour or whatever for his lunch break.
0: Yeah.
2: And that leaves everything wide open. Yeah. Now.
0: Yeah. Oh, load yourself to the chair. You know that's safe. Yeah, that's right. I won't mention that resort, but that one is just booming, and you just see every because it's so much powder. Yeah. Um, Yeah, they just go for lunch. You just have to load yourself, and the powder is the chair is hitting the powder. They have to stand there and dig it out. Yeah. yeah. So as a commando medic
3: for our like getting off on a sidetrack and kind of ending our um, interview. How did you get into it? You just you kind of touched it in the middle. You're you're a kid. You but when when did you know that you were, like you're a little bit of a kid on the wrong side of the tracks, and then you went the right side of the tracks.
2: Yeah, and- it kind of, it's actually kind of uh, I've explained it quite well in the book, Neil. Actually, but uh, just to give a recap on what it is, it's kind of funny. So I wanted to leave a book. I just need, needed to do something different, like you know. So I did the actual and and, and what happened was I went down to to do my um, examination, like you know, it's like the written examination to so actually kind of get into the navy. And I passed and they give you a score and they turn around and say, like, you know, your score was really high, which surprised me because I'd failed everything really. Yeah. And I turned around and said, OK, so these are the jobs you can fit into. OK. And medic was one of them. So I then turned around and saw this guy who was looking at me and I said, what are you going to do? And he goes, I'm going to be a medic. And I went, I'll do that as well. <laughs> we travelled down to Plymouth you know, to do our basic training and stuck together throughout the medical training as well. The transition then to the commando side, of it. I've always been outdoors. Yep. When I was a kid, I, when I was 12, 13 years of age, I used to thumb a lift up to the Lake District. And I lived in the Lake District in a small tent. For me, it was better to look at that. You, you, you had three options. You had the state in the Navy on ships. You went in the submarines, cast-iron coffins, as we call them. Yeah. And then we actually had the commandos as well. So I went into the commandos, known for a while. I could be out in the field all the time. And that was my particular transition, really. But the medical side of it was phenomenal. The training was unbelievable. You know, we, we got to do everything. Uh, lumbar punctures, bare holes where they screw in holes in the brain to relieve pressure.
0: Oh, my gosh, yeah.
2: We were trained up to a ship's doctor level and that, that was it really.
0: About The thing about your book that's coming out next year is there is... What's it called? Certainly. It's, zero Risk. We haven't even touched on Zero Risk, but so you have to read about it in the book. But there's a big focus on the fact that you were a commando medic. Yeah. But also the book, it goes from very light, like, It's light in tone but there's some, I won't say heavy because that's not maybe people don't want to read heavy things but there's some really serious stuff in there but it's punctuated with a lot of light situations and scenarios so that's the that's the charm of the book i think that is really quite quite gripping and it's very current stuff in there about the ukraine and afghanistan and tony's role in getting afghanistani journalists out and um what else can we say about the book were
3: you there sorry tony were you there when the planes just like recently like um last
2: year last year no so last year what happened was I was in there the year before, and uh, I was working on a news story the year before with um, some of the families. There was a couple of people who called me straight away, around about the 12th of August, like, you know, before Taliban, two days before Taliban hit uh, Kabul. So what they did was they actually said, look, you know, they always call me, Mr. Tony, Mr. Tony, can you help out? Can you help out? I said, yeah, yeah, sure, okay, I'll help out. So I spent literally between two weeks and a month, effectively, uh, from here, phone bashing and organizing my team around the globe. I to think. get them out, you know, so we got quite a lot of families out. We've just the last one we got out was he was high on Taliban's hit list, and we got him out uh a month ago.
3: What makes you high on a Taliban hit list?
2: Uh, number one, he was working for the military as a translator, okay, the American military, and number two, he was actually part of a uh, a women's rights group. So you know, you, th- you've hit the jackpot as far as Taliban's concerned, like you know. But, but yeah. the thing is, what happened to him though, dreadful situation, like you know, all of a sudden, the passports disappeared because taliban actually kind of came in and took all the passports away uh burned them and that was it so he was left with that we were left with nothing he was our last family to get out and we moved them up to the uh tajikistan border and we were trying to get him across the river to to Dushanbe, and uh, taliban was so prevalent around there and rounded people up and executing them so at the end of the day what we did was we kept him there for about three months then we brought him back down to al sharif tried to get him on an emergency flight couldn't do that and then came all the way back down to Kabul, and uh, and he used our app, the security app that we've got wow. to track and trace. You know, so in other words, we could tell him exactly where he is. We could send him messages via the app, and uh, so that worked worked really really well. And the the guys that went out previously, um, we got them out in a blackened uh, minibus. Wow. Uh, so the Taliban couldn't see what was going on, and basically we got them through to the final checkpoint. They weren't allowed to do anything, say anything. You know, not no movement at all. And on the final checkpoint when they were getting through to the airport, I could see them on our tracker that we've got, um, yeah. it tracks every 10 minutes,
0: yeah.
2: uh, and I pinged them a message and I said, welcome to the airport, you know, you can come out now. This oh, my is gosh, me. juice
0: bumps, far out. Oh, God. So we weird. could probably mention that um, Tony's got a company called Zero Risk and he has an app. It's a How would you put it? It's a bit like, you know, how we use um, Life 360 for our kids? Yes. It's like that but a more professional version of that and it's got a button that you can press check in wherever you are and he's got teams all over the world that can you can kind of make sure wherever you travel all over the world that you're okay and looked after and kind of clued
3: cool. into his. So, so sorry, is that something I'd use if Mackenzie wants to gap you next year? I'm like, okay, you need to get on
1: that app.
2: Yeah. And the good thing is with this, look, if we put it into the context of your program with the snow, yeah, uh, during the Kathmandu uh, earthquakes in 2018, yeah, it, before COVID hit, uh, two guys yeah. went missing. one of them had the app and he pressed check in. Okay, so at the end of the day, we actually kind of could see exactly where he was, and uh, the other guy pressed emergency help because in, in the avalanche, okay, and the, after the earthquake and the avalanche and the snow came down, what he did was what he shouldn't do is he put his arms up like this, which is like a natural reaction and all of his fingers were broken completely, all bent back, Wow, yeah. Basically, you know, what happened was, like, you know, we managed to press uh, the emergency help, so we knew that he needed help, but we could also see uh, Roberto Schmidt, the other reporter, next to him, and we just turned around and said he's still buried there. you know, this is where, more or less, where the last little ping came through anyway. do
3: Do you think this will kind of take over from the emergency pervs that are getting, no, you need both?
2: Yeah, you need both, because basically... And um, you get weak links sometimes, like and you get kind of blackouts in certain areas. Yep. What we're using it for now is a lot more for the gap year students who are going overseas. Yep. We're using it for school trips um, because we measure intelligence. So let's say you are a kid, Neil, thinking of going out for a gap year to Paris or whatever. What we do is we, we provide uh, risk alerts on the app and they appear as little pins.
1: Yep.
2: It tells you where some of the incidents have happened. So it, it, it tells you not to go there. Oh, I love it. And if we get intelligence, we put it in there and say, you know, we've just found out that, you know, there's a potential al-Qaeda attack. um, Please don't go out tomorrow. I can stay in your hotels until we receive further information or whatever. So it's a a real communication portal. Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, Uh, That's the world we live in. (laughs) Yeah. So we'll also put in our show notes any information about where people can go to access um, survival skills, courses that you have, Tony, and... Father, son. Yeah. Father, son, of course. Or parent. Parent parent, parent, child.
2: parent and child, yeah. So parent and child. No differentiation. Yeah.
0: yeah, and and the info about the the app and the book. And, and we deliberately haven't spoken about Avalanche courses during this episode because we've done one with Adam West who runs Avalanche Australia and one with Craig Shepherd who runs Mountain Safety Collective. So we'll drop it in the show notes as well. There's a place for
3: everyone in this, I think. Like, you know if you want to stay alive learn stuff educate yourself and you know i've, I've found my ski body it's tony
2: we learned the hard way we actually went through all of the shit you know so at the end of the day you can't come out of it and tell other people what you shouldn't do yeah you no know, there's no hope for anyone really i mean you know when you are going through it, like, you know, I, I, I remember one thing that happened to me years ago and I, I'm, well, I a couple of things. But the first one in particular was, you know, when you get, we used to have this thing called defensive positions where you dig a huge big pit and you put these Canadian 10 man tents up like that and you cam everything out. So you can't really see anything. And of course, late, later that night, I wanted to go for a pee and I went outside and all of a sudden there was a whiteout and I couldn't find myself back into the tent. Stuck in the middle of bloody nowhere, and and the only thing that happened, and it was just by luck, because we're all in a a tactical environment, no lights at all. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I felt this huge, big kind of drop, and I'd realised I'd gone into the communication trench, which was connecting the two up. Had it not been for that, then at the end of the day, you know, I would have, uh, I would have stuffed up. And the second for me really, you know, that sticks out. Where and and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not ashamed to say this. You can just see your life flashing by you know, everything's disappearing at a fast rate or not. And you think to yourself, like, you know, that's it, you know, all over, um, you know, but at the same time, you build up this resilience to keep going. And the second one, which was is in the book, is where I nearly got held hostage in Afghanistan in a, a small hospital that I visited. So, I'm really
3: excited to read this book. Is it going to come out in audio book as well? I'm a little bit
1: lazy so can, on the treadmill. <laughs> I'm, I'm a podcaster.
0: I I cannot hang out washing without learning something on a podcast. I'm. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah I'm really excited about zero risk. It's really exciting, you know. But yeah. um it'd
3: be remiss of us if we didn't end our podcast asking. Where's
2: your favourite place to ski in the world? Bloody hell. Uh, Well, um, to me, Aspen was fantastic. You know, it really blew me away when I was there a couple of years ago. But if you're looking at um, kind of remote locations, I mean, you know, northern Norway, you know, for me, you know, and borders of Sweden and towards Russia, uh, which is pretty pretty spectacular, pretty stunning.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, You know, but I I don't really tend to go for, it's kind of weird to say this, but, you know, (laughs) I'm I'm certainly the the kind of guy that wants to do that particular kind of cross-country stuff really as opposed to, you know yeah. the so for, for yeah. me that, but i've done quite a bit in switzerland as well and uh yeah. in france and france has always been quite nice the worst place probably to be honest with you was uh scotland in uh, glencoe in uh, I can, yeah. <laughs> and glenshee
1: yeah
2: the weather's like like you said it was pissing down with rain like you know and it was like miserable as 10 and i took my my wife then uh you know to, to the ski slopes and she Whinged, like anything all the way through. I was like, <laughs>
3: Well, it was no aspen. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. The whiskey was good, but the skin was shit.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. You got to weigh it up. <laughs> I'm going to go and buy Irish whiskey and aspen. <laughs> oh, Scottish. Scottish. <laughs>
0: this is this is bad, us doing this podcast. We speak to all these people doing these amazing. Yeah, no. That's, that's nothing for our Wonderlust, does it? I know. I thought the ski instructor was adventurous.
1: <laughs> Ooh,
2: a great job. Well,
0: we no. say thank you for coming on today, Tony. Yeah, it was amazing.
2: It's been a pleasure. It's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you thank very much for having
0: me on. Amazing tips,
3: amazing tips. I'm never gonna look at it. If it stops again in my life, I will be not the panicker.
0: I will and, be and I'm gonna to say to all the people that give me a hard time for carrying my backpack about, you should look at it now. <laughs> yeah.
1: Thanks for listening to Loving the Snow Life with Emma and Tonille. If you've learned a handy tip or two, then happy days. To catch all our episodes, subscribe on iTunes. It's free. Head over to
0: www.lovingthesnowlife.com.au for more info and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Loving the Snow Life. If you have any suggestions for topics or guests, then email us on our website. Thanks to everyone who leaves a review on iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to share our episodes on your social media.